0: There was some conviction in that song. Well, if you have your Bibles, keep it at the ready. We're going to go all over the place this morning. Uh, Topical message this morning. Resurrection shock and awe is what I've entitled the message here this morning. I don't know if you ever thought deeply about the resurrection, uh, if you believe in the resurrection, or why you believe in the resurrection, but I want to uh, share with you this morning how unique the resurrection is to the truth of Christianity, the uh, Judeo-Christian faith, and uh, why, uh, you know, somebody said, it's the only show in town, so to speak. I mean, there are no even real serious competitors to the truth of Christianity, if you really understand uh, the truth of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you for your, your word now. I pray that you would give me grace to teach it accurately and clearly. And again, we are celebrating and rejoice in the, in the truth of our risen Lord this morning. I pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, it is Resurrection Sunday, and I want to consider with you for just a few minutes how incredible is the truth of the resurrection. Resurrection truth, as I say, is truly unique to the Christian faith. It is very rare in the annals of history that someone comes back to life after they are certifiably dead. Now, I know you've got certain charismatic teachers. Uh, you know, I remember talking to a relative of mine and he said, yeah, I, I, you know, somebody was raised from the dead. And I don't know if he was right there and saw it or not. But, you know, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely true. It's like certifiably dead. I mean, really? When's the last time you saw that? Uh, yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It <laughs> doesn't happen. Uh, there are a few examples in the Old Testament, a few examples in the New Testament, but it's very rare. Elisha and Elijah uh, were both unique prophets in the Old Testament, and they both were used of God to bring a child back to life after the child had clearly died. When Elisha died, they buried him. And sometime later, as the Moabites were invading the land, some Jews were, were burying a man uh, when they suddenly spied a band A band of invaders. And here's what we read about in 2 Kings chapter 13 verses 20 and 21. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. I mean, as good a place as any, I guess, if you're in a hurry, Right. And when, they, uh, and when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Uh, How is that for shock and awe? Uh, I mean, what an amazing thing. And I think it speaks to the fact that the body is sacred before God. I mean, it's interesting. You touch the bones of Elisha and he comes back to life himself. Elisha was a special prophet of God and just touching his bones on this occasion brought this man back to life. Now, admittedly, that is a total exception to the rules. You can say, well, let's, let's go get our other dead friends and bring them and start blowing them down and touching Elisha's bones. <laughs> it only happened once, right? It was a unique occasion. But uh, it is interesting that uh, it speaks to the fact of God's resurrection power, in a sense, uh, years ago, we had a man in our church who told me this story. It was always kind of an interesting story. I never forgot it. It was a true story. And, uh, you know, years ago when the mortuary was just downtown, uh, there was a guy who was a little bit, had some problems, but he would hang around the mortuary and he seemed to have a fascination with dead bodies. And, uh, So he would come in and just kind of look at these dead bodies. Well, somebody down at the mortuary figured out some kind of contraption where when they would hit a button behind the the screen, it would start to raise the body up. Well, he came in there one day, and he's doing his thing. And so they're watching, and and they they hit the button, and the body started coming up. The guy fled from the scene. (laughs) Fled from the scene and never came back. Well that's kind of how it is when you think about somebody maybe coming back, showing signs of coming back to life uh, there is shock there shock and awe we don't expect dead people to come back do we uh, not not right now uh, yeah in the resurrection my brother will rise as you know martha tells jesus but um, well everyone knows that death is permanent that's why we don't expect anything to happen contrary to that right Apart from supernatural activity, nothing can be done about the condition of death. We all realize that. It's it's a permanent condition. We we don't see people being raised from the dead. Even charismatic meetings, it's very difficult to to have that happen. It doesn't happen. Well, in discussing the dead coming back to life, we need to make a clear distinction between what the Bible calls resurrection and what is merely resuscitation. Uh, Note what I say here. The resurrection of Christ was permanent and eternal in contrast to resuscitation, which is temporary. Those raised back to life in the Bible once again died a mortal death later on. But Jesus conquered death to the point it no longer has any dominion over him. That's the difference. Uh, Don Stewart says this. There is a difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Resurrection refers to putting on a new glorified body, while resuscitation means raising the person in the old mortal body in which they died. So that's the distinction here. Note these points about the uh, resurrection body of Jesus Christ. Number one... The resurrection body of Christ was transformed into a supernatural, in a supernatural way, allowing him to pass through locked doors, etc., thus showing that he was not bound by the normal laws of nature. So this, uh, this resurrection body of Jesus Christ uh, had amazing ability that we don't normally see. Number two, the resurrection body of Christ was raised in an imperish- imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual form. And then number three, Jesus was the very first person to receive a glorified body in resurrection form. The first person. uh, Note the emphasis here in in 1 Corinthians 15, what we call the, the resurrection chapter. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then again in verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward Those are Christ at his coming. That word first fruits is really a harvest term, referring to the first of the harvest. Uh, The first fruits, and that's really a promise of more to come. The first fruits are just the beginning. Christ himself in the resurrection is the first fruits, the very beginning. So when we talk about the resurrection, realize that no one before Christ had ever been resurrected. In a glorified body. No one. Resuscitated? Yeah. Even in Jesus' own ministry. Lazarus and so forth. There were some resuscitations. The poor Lazarus had to die again. He was not resurrected in a glorified body. Christ was the very first. He is the first fruits, And no one since Christ has been resurrected in a glorified body. There is more to come. But it hasn't happened yet. As Paul says, afterward, when's this going to happen? Afterward, those are Christ at his coming. So at the coming of Christ, there is going to be more of the fruit, more of the harvest of of glorified bodies at the the second coming of Jesus Christ. And really, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul's really talking about the rapture of the church saints who are going to share in resurrection glory. Christ himself alone is the first fruits of resurrection life, but then afterwards at his coming, all the church saints will share in resurrection life. That's a wonderful thing to think about. Uh, you know, you think, well, death's the end. You know, imagine you're going to die tomorrow. Um, just imagine. And some of, some of us may. I mean, we just don't know, right? I mean, I'm at an age where they're not expecting me to live much longer. Li- I'm just kidding. <laughs> we just don't know, though, right? We don't know. Well, maybe we'll get killed in a car wreck. Or, who, who knows? But, uh, you know, you come to the end of life, now what? Well, if you don't have any hope and all that you have is this life, well, it's over. It's over. But we as believers know, this is not the end. Uh, We're just transitioning to even even a greater experience. Well, Paul talks about this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Is, we're not going to all die, but we shall all be changed. And he's talking about glorified. We're all going to get a glorified body. And notice he says this is going to happen quickly. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the dead, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. What does he mean? This is a mystery. Uh, you understand that the Old Testament saints didn't know about the truth of, of a coming resurrection. Job 19, uh, Daniel chapter 12, and so forth. They knew about the truth of future resurrection, and yet they knew nothing about the church or the rapture of the church, which is really in view here, in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the revelation of new church truth previously unrevealed, Hence, it was a, a mystery now being revealed. And notice how quickly it's going to happen. The word moment is the Greek word atomos, from which we get the English word atom. Uh, it literally means that which cannot be divided. Uh, for centuries, the atom was considered to be the smallest particle possible. It was thought to be Indivisible. Uh, nobody thought the atom could be split. So so the idea here is the smallest amount of time possible in a moment. Smallest amount of time. Possible. I mean, it's, it's going to happen so quick. And then to underscore, uh, he doesn't just state it one way. He states it two ways. Uh, he says it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. The, the word uh, twinkling means uh, uh, to hurl like you would hurl a javelin. Uh, The idea is with great rapidity of movement. That's the idea here. The eye is the fastest moving part of the body. However, many scholars don't think it's really talking about the blinking of an eye, but the twinkling of an eye is really uh, the gleam or the glance of an eye, which is a whole lot faster than the blinking of an eye. The point is it will happen extremely fast and instantaneously. There'll be no time for anyone to change their mind. You say, well, I see, I don't want to be, uh, uh, Lord, I'm believing in you too now. I want to be on board. No, 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 no. Uh, When the rapture happens, we're gone Uh, in a moment, smallest amount of time possible in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be gone in a flash. It's not going to be a drawn out process. Both the living and the dead in Christ will receive the same type of glorified body. We're all going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're all going to share in the same glorified body, but we're going to get there in two different ways. The dead, that is the departed souls going to be with Christ, will be returning with him, that is their souls, and will be reunited with their bodies, and thus will be raised incorruptible, uh, which is to say they will be raised with a body that is no longer subject to decay. Those living at Christ's coming will have their bodies instantly changed, which is to say they will have their bodies transformed into a glorified body. The difference is that the living will not have to die. But all the saints will get their body back only in glorified form. This is resurrection truth. We're going to share in the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ and that we too are going to get a a glorified body. The phrase put on, uh, we saw put on there, was commonly used to putting on clothing. Thus our redeemed spirits will now be dressed in glorified bodies suited for the kingdom, suited for eternity. Our bodies in effect are the are only the clothing for the real person, right? You've got your body clothes, your soul, your spirit. In the rapture, the real person, that is your soul and your spirit, will put on another suit, so to speak. And this is what Paul meant by being further clothed in in 2 Corinthians 5, 4. Notice what he says there. For we who are in this tent groan. so the body is pictured as a tent. And tents are temporary, by the way. This this tent is very temporary. And, uh, you know, tents are not really glorious. I mean, you can't compare your tent to a real house, right? It's, it's temporary. Uh, for we are in this tent growing. That's what we do. Uh, and some of us have grown better than others. Uh, but uh, we've grown. You know, we're, we're breaking down. We feel the effects. And, you know, life just isn't fair. The older you get, the more you start breaking down, the more you start feeling it, right? Yeah. And things happen in the middle of the night, like when I was on my way back to the bed last night, and my foot ran into the bed. And Janie says, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, I was groaning a little bit, right? Uh, we are in this tent, groan. We groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, that is, to die and be without a body, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's death. I mean, your, your soul leaves your body. Uh, not because we want to be unclothed we're tired of groaning but it's not that we want to just die and and be without a body but further clothed there's our hope further clothed that is with a resurrection body resurrection body that mortality may be swallowed up by life wow this is the Christian hope further clothed Uh, I'm looking I like this body But it is groaning a lot. And it's breaking down. But I'm looking to the further clothing. Uh, When I'm going to get a glorified body like Jesus Christ has. What a day that's going to be. We have lots of scriptures that bring this out. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And that's true for every Christian, by the way. If you're a true Christian, a true believer, the spirit dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. You're going to receive resurrection truth in this body. It's going to be glorified. Just as Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, You know, you say, well, when I die, that's just the end of this body. No, it's not. There's a further clothing. And he's going to do it in conjunction with this body. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be resurrected. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. How is this going to happen? Well, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. This is believers, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where your citizenship is. Uh, maybe you're a citizen of the United States or somewhere too, but, but uh, you know that's a small C. This is kind of like capital C. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's true for you this morning. You're eagerly waiting for Jesus to come. You're looking forward to it. If you're a true believer, that's the expectation. And what's going to happen when he comes? Wow. Who will transform our lowly body. You know, that's the tent we're groaning in. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. We're going to have a body just like Jesus Christ did in in his resurrection glory. How's it going to happen? According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And finally, one more reference here in 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed, but what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What an amazing time that is going to be. But my point to you this morning, one of the key points I'm making this morning uh, in talking about resurrection shock and awe is that never before in the history of the world had anyone ever seen a resurrection before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to realize just how unique this is in the history of the world. And it was an event that changed the course of history, for sure. Now, yes, there were a few cases of resuscitation, but not resurrection. No one saw this coming. It was totally unheard of, totally unique. In fact, resurrection truth is is totally unique to the Judeo-Christian faith among all the religions of the world. Never before the time of Christ do we find anything like it, nor do we find anything like it after the time of Christ. There's a lot of famous tombs in the world. I've been to a few. I mean, we went to the Billy Graham... uh, Uh, Library when we were out there in Charlotte, North Carolina years ago. And, you know, we went to the Graham's uh, grave site there. You know, maybe you've been to a few famous uh, tombs. Uh, But, uh, you know, there's one thing that's unique about Christ's tomb. You know, you talk about a lot of famous people. Confucius' tomb occupied, Buddha's tomb occupied, Muhammad's tomb occupied, all these religious leaders of the world. But Jesus' tomb is empty. And uh, here's the point. The tomb of Christ is famous because of what it does not contain. There's the difference. Think about this for a moment. I want you to appreciate how absolutely new and unheard of was the truth of the resurrection. In the entire history of the world, before the time of Christ, there was no such thing as the idea of a future resurrection, except for a few shadowy passages in the Old Testament. Yeah, it is there, but what does it mean? The ancient Eastern religions do a a study of, of world religions. And people try to do this, try to sort out, well, what do I believe? Well, you know, Christianity, oh, that's one option, but what about all these other religions? Yeah, go ahead, check them out. The ancient Eastern religions never conceived of the idea of a future resurrection. The mystery religions never knew of any concept of a physical resurrection. Look among all the religions of history, and in spite of all kinds of mysticism, and yeah, there's lots of mysticism and fanciful tales, but in spite of all that, the idea of a physical resurrection is really foreign to those religions. What about Islam? Well, Islam didn't show up for 700 years until, you know, into the church age. Today, among the religions of the world, only Islam, Judaism, and Christianity teach the reality of a future resurrection. But here is the essential point. Never in the history of the world is there any record anywhere of a glorified resurrection taking place in connection with historical data. Note that last phrase, in connection with historical data. That is, until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only prophetic. Yeah, we see it there in the prophecies in the Old Testament. It's not only prophetic, but it's also historic. Put those two together, prophetic and historic, and that's powerful. It intersects with real history. There's real historical data. This is not just some fanciful mysticism like, oh, it's not connected to anything. No, it's connected to prophecy. It's connected to history. This is history that fulfills prophecy. Now, there's there's absolutely nothing else like this anywhere in the world. None of the other faiths have anything like this. It's just, just, I just want to champion this. I just want to make a big deal out of this. In the whole of history, we don't see anything like this anywhere. This is what made the resurrection so totally shocking. For this reason, no one saw it coming. The Jewish religious leaders never saw it coming. Even Jesus' own disciples never saw it coming. It took them all by surprise. There was shock. Note uh, in Matthew 28... We read, but uh, let us read again. After the Sabbath, first day of the week, began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I don't know about you, but if I was one of them, I think I'd have become a believer right there. I mean, uh, this is amazing. The guards experienced shock, and on and they didn't even see the risen Lord. They just saw the angel. They just saw the effects of it. They saw the angel, of the Lord, who rolled back the stone on resurrection morning. The the women, when they came to the tomb, Mark sixteen eight. So they went out quickly, fled from the tomb. Oh, it's empty. And they too saw the angel there. For for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The interaction with the angel and the sight of the empty grave was shocking. And then on resurrection eve, Jesus appeared to the disciples. And it says, now as they said these things, they're having conversation about the activities of the day. You know, discussing it, trying to sort it all out. And here comes Jesus. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. (laughs) That's a good thing he said that. If he said boo, I think it all... uh, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened. What were their initial thoughts? Supposing they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So yes, it was a glorified, transformed body, and yet he still had bones and flesh. He was all represented there physically. But note this critical point. Even though no one else saw it coming, it took them all by shock. Yet God saw it coming. Of course, God knows everything. But we see in the prophetic scriptures, Psalm 1610, of course, David wrote this a thousand years before the time of Christ. Psalm 1610, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Holy One is clearly Jesus Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he's talking about the gospel. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, in other words, according to the Old Testament scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is all in fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. In other words, God saw it coming. Jesus clearly saw it coming as he predicted his coming resurrection repeatedly. Even the religious leaders knew that Jesus had predicted his resurrection. They just didn't believe it. And they didn't believe it because they didn't want to believe it. But uh, Matthew 27, on the next day, this would be uh, Saturday, uh, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Boy, they still remember that. Therefore, command that the tomb may be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. My point is, it was widely known that Jesus had prophesied of his coming resurrection on the third day. But no one seemed to really seriously consider this. Not even his own disciples. They didn't expect this to happen. Matthew 16, 21 from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must first go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. This is, I'm Clearly told him, point blank. I'm gonna, this is what's going to happen to me, and then I'm going to be raised the third day. John 10, 17 and 18, verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my, myself, speaking of his life. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. But how do we know it's really true? I mean, anyone can claim these things, right? But what's the proof? Well, the Holy Scriptures themselves are sufficiently convincing. I mean, after all, the Spirit of God is living. The Word of God is living. And He makes it come alive in our hearts. There's nothing more convincing or necessary than this. And this is Paul's emphasis to those at Corinth who were emphasizing human wisdom. Uh, I don't care how bright you are, how eloquent you are, unless the Holy Spirit does the work, it's not going to happen. And that's his point here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, as it's considered by the world. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is God's method. This is God's way. And then in chapter 2, Paul says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Really? Paul, that's, that's not your approach? Boy, let me just present some, some intellectually satisfying arguments that are really going to bring you into the kingdom. That wasn't it. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Well, what were they? But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, you know what that is? The Spirit works through the message, through the power of the gospel. And the power is in transforming minds and hearts and lives. In demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I mean, we interact with the living God and the power of his gospel as we share the gospel. But having said all that, even so, objective evidence for the truth of the resurrection is so strong that even just historically, it is incontrovertible if one is really honest with the facts. And God made us minds and all. Uh, You know, yeah, people without Christ, I mean... They're still in the image of God. It's a very marred image, but uh, they still have minds. As God says, come now, let us reason together in Isaiah 118. Years ago, Professor Thomas Arnold, a world-renowned historian, I'm talking history now, historian, once said that Christ's resurrection from the dead is, quote, the best attested fact in human history. The best attested fact in human history. We're talking history now. Matt Perman says, It is worth pointing out that in establishing the historicity, we're talking historicity, history, in establishing the historicity of the resurrection, we do not need to assume that the New Testament is inspired by God or even trustworthy. While I do believe these things, there are three truths that even critical scholars admit. In other words, these three truths are so strong that they are accepted by serious historians of all stripes. So he's saying, no matter what you do, if you don't even believe the New Testament, they'll just go with history. Even if you're just going with history, there's three things that even any honest historian cannot deny these three things. What are they? By the way, this isn't just one guy saying this. I read a lot of these kind of guys, and they all say this. Pretty much the same thing. What are these things? Well, number one, uh, Christ's tomb was found empty. It's found empty. I mean, all they had to do was produce a body, right? I mean, I could have just stamped out this, this early budding religion. The tomb was empty. Number two, the historical record shows that the disciples had real experiences with one they believed was the risen Lord. These are historical documents that show this is where they were in their thinking. And number three, the Christian church was established on the basis of believing Christ's resurrection. Okay, when did the church come about in history? You say, well, it goes back 3,000 years. No, it doesn't. It goes back 2,000 years. And pinpointed historically, when, does, when did it happen? After the, resurre- the resurrection launched this movement that we call the Church of Jesus Christ. These are historically documented objective facts. No serious scholar denies any of this, secular or religious. It's incontrovertible. It's a historical faith. I love it. It's prophetic. It's historic. It all jives. There's no discrepancy. Well, let's look at this a little more carefully. First, all of the enemies, all the enemies of Christ had to do to stamp out the the truth of the resurrection was to produce the dead body. That's all you have to do. Very simple thing. Just go to the tomb and get the body. After all, there's a Roman guard there. He's not going anywhere. But even the Jews, you see, did not deny the truth of the empty tomb. Rather, they said the body was stolen. Now, it takes a lot of faith to believe that in view of the Roman guard, which was uh, set, uh, set a watch over the tomb. And the penalty, uh, if, if, you did not, if you were not responsible in your position as a Roman guard, the penalty was death. I mean, these guys took this extremely seriously. D.H. Van Dalen says, It is extremely difficult to object to, object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Did you catch that? It is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Let's just go with history. Can you deny it on historical grounds? Where is the history that would controvert it, uh, contradict it? Second, the disciples are on historical record as, as clearly claiming to have seen and interacted with the risen Lord. It's a matter of historical record. And the record is undeniable. Now you have three choices about the historical record concerning the disciples. They hallucinated. Number one. Number two, they were flat out lying. Or number three, they really did see the risen Lord. Now, hallucinations are, do not tend to be a group activity. Right, I mean, somebody's hallucinating. It's kind of like, okay, well, now all the friends are joining in with this, and we're—they're all, all hallucinating. They're all having the same hallucination at the exact same time. That's not how hallucinations work. They're bizarre and kind of totally arbitrary and by themselves. People do not have the same exact hallucinations and stick with the same story for a whole lifetime. Doesn't happen. How about lying? If the disciples were lying, they. We're willing to die for a lie. Now, people will die for a lie if they think it's the truth. But if they know it's a lie, they're not gonna die for a lie. And certainly not the whole group. I love this quote from Charles Colson. He says, "'I know the resurrection is a fact, "'and Watergate proved it to me.' "'How?' Because 12 men testified "'that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And add to that, and be willing to die for it. There's no way this was a lie. Absolutely no way. Years ago, ABC did a documentary uh, called The Search for Jesus. They interviewed a historical scholar by the name of Paula Friedrichson. Uh, she was not a Christian, but she said this concerning the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Here's what she said, quote, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they saw. That's what they say, and then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, that they must have seen something. (laughs) She's saying, the history record says it. The history record says it. They saw it. It's history. As a historian, I can't deny that is what she said. They saw something. I think they were convinced She's not quite convinced, but she said they were convinced. And add to that, yeah, in keeping with fulfilled prophecy, as well as the whole life of Jesus Christ, that's all in keeping with prophecy. It all connects. It all jives. The only reasonable explanation is the disciples really did see the risen Lord, and they knew that it was true, and therefore they willingly laid down their lives for the truth of it. Third, it's an undeniable fact of history that the Christian church traces its beginning back to the first century following the disciples' claims to have seen the risen Lord. So any one of these historical facts, historical facts, yes, biblical truth, but also historical facts, any one of these in and of themselves is convincing that Jesus is risen from the dead. But when you put them all together together, It makes for a powerfully convincing package of evidence that is irrefutable. This explains why in the early church, as seen in the book of Acts, we have the truth of the resurrection going out throughout the whole known world. The book of Acts presents the first 30 years of of church history. And the dominant theme in the book of Acts is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It so gripped the disciples that they spread this message far and wide. And you couldn't shut them up. At least 25 passages in the book of Acts highlight the glorious truth of the resurrection. What's the early history of the church about? Something brand new, never seen before in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Note just a few places. In Acts 2.24, Peter says, Whom God raised up, speaking of Jesus, having loose the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 3.15, killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And then again in Acts chapter 10, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it was he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets give witness. We have history connected with prophecy here. History. Here's what we saw. Here's our experience. And it's in keeping with prophecy. Verse 23. To him, all the prophets witness. That through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Well, as you think about Jesus this morning, how do you see him in your mind this morning? In truth, we have no idea what Jesus actually looked like, the historical Jesus. Was he tall or short? Uh, what was the, you know, the pigment of his skin? Was he darker, lighter? We don't know those things. We know he had a beard, wore sandals, that, those kind of things, but that's about it. You see, the biblical record is silent as to his appearance. The early church is completely silent as to his appearance during his earthly ministry. So we leave it to the artist to paint pictures for us, and they do that. But I want you to know it's completely arbitrary. We have no idea what Jesus really looked like. Is this this Jesus? (laughs) Well, it's an artist. It's an artist rendition, right? But we have no idea what Christ actually looked like in his earthly ministry. No idea. But there is one exception. We do have a biblical portrait of what the resurrected Christ in all of his glory looks like. Even that is totally beyond us. But uh, there is a biblical portrait for us in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, 13 through 16. John saw a vision of the glorified risen Christ, and here's what he saw in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. Now, there's perhaps a combination of things here, but most scholars believe that really what you have, the overall picture here is is Jesus presented as a judge. The robe fits the part. His white hair portrays wisdom, purity, eternality. His eyes as a flame of fire portrays his gaze as penetrating. His feet as brass portray him treading out judgment. His voice was deep and powerful with absolute authority. His right hand symbolizes The power of sovereign control, two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth, portrays judicial authority. And finally, his countenance was overpoweringly awesome. Beyond comprehension, when it says it was like the sun shining in its strength. This is Christ high and lifted up. This is Christ in his exalted resurrection glory. And what was the response of John? Say, well, hey, it's really nice to finally see you in your glory. Uh, no, that's not how it went down. Here's how it went down. Revelation 1, 17, 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Shock and awe, glory. Resurrection glory. I'm glad it doesn't just stop right there. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Who makes this kind of claim? I have the keys. I have the keys to Hades and of death. Now, um, we sometimes imagine that heaven will be like this. And there may be an element of truth in this as, as we... Think about the whole big picture. But, uh, you know, I have no, no doubt that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a grand reception by the Lord. But uh, the Bible actually portrays it uh, more like this, our are seeing the, the risen glorified Christ. All, no picture is adequate for sure. But I have no doubt that it will be shock and awe. The resurrection glory. The one who is eternal life. To be in his immediate presence. As someone as well said, heaven will at once be a great eye opener and a great mouth shutter. I have no doubt that my mouth will be firmly shut except for in praise to the Lord and worship to the Lord. But I want you to notice that while John is flat on his face as a dead man, Christ in love put his right hand on him saying, do not be afraid. I love that about Jesus. Shows up on resurrection eve. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. I mean, he's not against us, he's for us. What, what a wonderful thing. There's a lot to, be, uh, to make us afraid these days, but the one who is the first and the last, that is the eternal God, says to us, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And the reason we don't have to fear is because he is the one who was dead, but behold, he is now alive forevermore. And he has the keys. Keys represent authority. He has the keys of Hades. That, that is the realm of death, the spiritual realm of death. He has the key of Hades and of death, referring to the grave, the spiritual realm, the physical realm. He's got all the keys. The ultimate concern and fear of people in the world is death. Boy, and uh, we have seen that. I mean, people dying. Uh, coming through this pandemic. Fear everywhere. Fear of death. What a, what a wonderful time to be alive and to be a uh, a witness to the truth of, of life in Jesus Christ. And yes, we take you know, the physical all serious and we're concerned about it. But what about after this life? This is the ultimate issue. Only Christ has a solution to the death problem. He alone has the keys. Only he can unlock... This bondage reality, the destiny of every human being, is under the authority of Jesus Christ. As awesome as it will be for us as believers to see the risen Christ in all of his glory, and I think when we see him, we'll be flat on our face, and he in love will, will lift us up, just like he did to John. But as awesome as that is, and, and we're going to see him one day. Wow, there's going to be a... what. Can't imagine. Let's say he comes right now, and we're just caught up in our glorified bodies to meet the Lord in the air. I mean, it's going to be an overwhelming experience for absolutely every one of us. People say they're going to look around and see, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be looking around, but else, I think we're just going to have all eyes on Jesus Christ here. But uh, for the world, it's going to be absolute shock and awe when they see the risen Lord. And they're all going to see him. Uh, Note this in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, which leads into chapter 53, one of the key chapters in the Old Testament. But in Isaiah, and these, these verses really belong to chapter 53. But uh, Isaiah 52, verse 14, relates to his first coming. Just as many were astonished at you, speaking of, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form, more than the sons of men. Uh, in other words, it's describing uh, what they did to him physically during the Passion Week culminating in the cross. But then, his second coming, so he shall sprinkle is how a lot of the translation, but really startle, I think, is the better translation. So, he, uh, so shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider." Uh, This is not the end of the story, verse 14. Verse 15 is the end of the story. And then again, in Philippians chapter 2, 8 through 11, related to his first coming, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Yeah, first coming realities related to the cross. But there are second coming realities, As well, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. They're all bowing. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody's going to bow. You know, Hitler is right on his knees there. Name whatever great considered a great leader they're going to be there they're going to be on their knees they're going to be confessing that jesus is lord to the glory of god revelation chapter one seven and eight behold he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him even so amen christ coming his second coming to the world and I think this is the Christ-rejecting world and they are they are not happy. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The resurrection of Christ means that all his claims, all his claims to be God come in the flesh, all his claims to be the eternal I am, it's all true. It means that God has fully accepted his payment on the cross. So proved of God, as seen in the resurrection. Christianity is the only religion in the world in which God becomes a man and thereafter is eternally the God-man. History is crowded with men who would be gods, but only one God who would be man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only religion in the world whose leader has risen from the dead and whose tomb is unoccupied. Nobody else, no other religion can claim this anywhere. And Hebrews 2 says that Christ tasted death for everyone with the goal of bringing many sons to glory. Now let me ask you on this Resurrection Sunday, do you know him? Let me point out just three central truths in relationship to the gospel. Faith. The way you accept Christ is by faith. You don't accept Christ through a ritual, through whatever. It's by faith. It's it's a heart issue. And it says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How How do we have peace relationship with God? Through Jesus Christ. By faith. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what do you have to believe? Well, you have to believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. Romans 5, 8, and 9, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. There's the gospel. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Did you catch this? Justified by faith, Romans 5, 1. Justified by his blood. Which is it? Yes, the blood makes the payment. You believe it. You believe in Christ as your Savior, but that's not the full story. The rest of the story is Christ rose from the dead the third day. Romans ten nine and 10, 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, if you really believe that that God raised Jesus from the dead, that means that you're acknowledging him personally for who he is as the risen Lord. You're believing in him for what he did as he died for all of your sins, and then as Lord he rose again. Faith must be personal. No one can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. We believe with our heart. We confess with our mouth. So what say you? Who is Jesus to you? Years ago, a a man by the name of S.M. Lockridge, actually his full name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Uh, You can see why he went by S.M., right? S.M. Lockridge. But he preached a sermon titled, That's My King. That's My King. It's a famous sermon. A little excerpt from that sermon. My king was born king. The Bible says he is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He is the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? I'm coming to tell you this, that the heavens of heavens cannot contain him let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Do you know him? There's the ultimate question. Do you know him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible is very clear. Ultimate issue about the resurrection truth. You know, one day there is going to be a resurrection to life, those in Christ. And there's going to be a resurrection really to eternal death for those that don't know Christ. Everyone's going to be resurrected from the dead, John chapter 5. But it all depends on whether you know Jesus Christ, which side of the equation you're going to be on. I, I trust you really know Jesus. No one knows your heart ultimately and perfectly except for God, and no one can make this decision for you. You have to do it. Here's the truth of the resurrection prophetically, it's fulfilled, historically, it's undeniable. What will you do with the truth of the resurrection? That's what I present before you this morning. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And not just intellectually uh, mouth words. It's got to be a heart thing. It's with the heart that one believes. Is it real in your heart? Do you know him? Let's have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.